our, our uh, passage for this morning is Matthew twenty twenty nine to thirty four. Again, that's Matthew twenty twenty nine to thirty four. If you would please go ahead and turn there, and uh, let's begin by reading the passage together. Uh, we're in a section where Jesus is preparing his disciples for life between his resurrection and his return. It's a section that I've entitled "The Returning King." He's currently on his way to Jerusalem. He has just warned his disciples about what will happen to him there. And that warning uh, became an occasion for him to instruct them about the meaning of greatness in the kingdom of heaven. Uh, Up to this point in this section of the gospel, we've learned about the kind of priorities that the disciples should set in light of Christ's return. We've touched a little bit on the difficulty that they'll encounter while he is away and how this should affect the character of their mission. We've also discussed the type of reward they'll receive for enduring that hardship uh, until he returns, uh, or or the the reward they'll receive when he returns, as well as how that reward will be distributed. Uh, Now Matthew writes this, And as they went out of Jericho, a great crowd followed him. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside, and when they heard that Jesus was passing by, They cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent, but they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, let our eyes be open. And Jesus, in pity, touched their eyes, and immediately they recovered their sight, and followed him. Not all miracles are created equal. I think we understand this instinctively. Of course, all miracles require supernatural intervention. That's what makes the miracles. They bend or break the laws of God's created order. And it takes God to do that. That's what makes them special. Miracles are an act of God. They're evidence of God's direct interaction with His creation. So they're all supernatural. And in this sense, every miracle is equally impossible. It was just as much a miracle for Moses' staff to turn into a snake as it was for God to part the Red Sea. Gideon's fleece was just as miraculous as Samson's strength. The floating axe head was just as much a miracle as the resurrection of the Shunammite son or as the cure of Naaman's leprosy. All those miracles required God to directly intervene and overrule the laws of His creation. They're all supernatural. They're all equal in this sense. And and yet, I think we still understand that not all miracles are truly equal. Yes, they all require the same divine intervention, yet some carry more weight than others. We talk about the ten plagues more than we talk about Balaam's donkey. Not only because of their size, their grandeur, but because of their weight. We understand that there's something of greater significance being communicated in the plagues than there is in a talking donkey. We talk about God sending fire down from the sky to consume Elijah's sacrifice more than we talk about Elisha's floating axe head. Again, not because of the size of the miracle, but because of the weight. The meaning behind Elijah's sacrifice is more significant. It's of greater fundamental importance than Elisha's floating axe head. The destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah 
is very much like God's destruction of the five Amorite kings in Joshua. In fact, the Joshua miracle is probably even more impressive because in it, God actually causes the sun to stand still for a day so that Israel can pursue their enemies. And yet, I think we probably tend to talk more about the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, in part because of the reason for their destruction. So all miracles are miraculous, equally miraculous, and yet we're inclined to uh, pay attention to some miracles more than others. And the reason why we do this, it would seem, is because of the messages sent by those miracles. That's what miracles are designed to do. They're not just there to wow us. They aren't there as mere parlor tricks. God isn't a a magician who merely wishes to entertain us with His amazing feats of power. No, they're meant to send a message. And because of this, we pay attention to some miracles more than others. The message they send, we understand, carries greater weight than the others. They're more important in that regard. Well, it's for this reason I would say that the miracle I just read to you a moment ago, Jesus' healing of the two blind men outside Jericho, is a highly, highly underrated miracle. It's overlooked. At face value, this miracle doesn't seem like it's too big of a deal. Jesus is leaving Jericho on his way up to Jerusalem. There's this crowd following him. And as he's going along, these two men start crying out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd tries to silence these men. It's not entirely clear why. But Jesus stops and he asks the men, What do you want me to do for you? He draws attention to the miracle he's about to perform. They say, Lord, let our eyes be open. Jesus has pity on them, touches their eyes, and they're healed. I mean, that doesn't sound like too big of a deal, does it? I mean, don't get me wrong, it's an amazing feat of power, but is it really that much more remarkable than the healing of the man with leprosy? Or the healing of the woman with the hemorrhage? Or the paralytic? Or the man with the withered hand? Or any of the other many physical healings that Jesus performed? For that matter, Jesus has already healed the blind on at least three other occasions, one of which we saw back in Matthew 9. So is there anything about this particular instance of healing that sets it apart from the others? What's the big deal? It's probably natural to be drawn to some of the more overpowering miracles that Jesus performed rather than this one. The exorcism of Legion. That was an impressive miracle. The feeding of the 5,000, that was an impressive and a very memorable miracle. I mean, that one was so big, every single one of the gospel writers included it in their gospel. You think of Jesus' calming of the storm, or of His walking on water. You consider the transfiguration, or His resurrection of Lazarus. Lazarus, these are the ones that probably come to mind when we think of the most significant miracles that Jesus ever performed. And don't get me wrong, this isn't to take away from any of those. Those are all important miracles. But this healing of the blind, it's important too. In fact, I'd venture to say that it's probably far more important than you realize. At least in terms of Matthew's Gospel, this is actually one of the most important. This one's a game changer in Jesus' ministry. And if you want to know why it's wrapped up in what these blind men are saying, They're crying out on two different occasions, Son of David. 
They say in verse 31, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And then after the crowds try to silence them, they cry out all the more in verse 33, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. That's what sets this miracle apart. It's the message that Jesus communicates when he does this. With this miracle, he openly, publicly declares that he's the son of David. We talked about this some back with the healing of the two blind men at the end of chapter 9. Of all the miracles that we see performed throughout the Scripture, only Jesus is recorded to have healed the blind. Think about that. I mean, Jesus turned the water into wine, but Moses turned the Red Sea into blood. Jesus calmed the storm and He walked on water, but Moses parted the Red Sea. Jesus fed the 5,000, but God multiplied the manna with Moses as well. Jesus healed the leper, and so did Elisha before him. He raised the dead, but again, so did Elijah and Elisha. Most of Jesus' miracles actually find parallels with other miraculous accounts in the Scriptures, and that's partly by design. Many of the miracles were signs that pointed back to previous events and which then demonstrated their ultimate fulfillment in Christ. But only Jesus heals the blind. And the reason why this matters is because the healing of the blind is a uniquely messianic miracle. It's a sign like all the others, but it's a sign that points to a ministry that the Messiah alone will perform. And that's the spiritual regeneration of Israel. You see this concept first come up in Isaiah 35. There God speaks of the restoration that will occur in Israel when He brings them out of exile and establishes them again in their land. If you would, go ahead and turn there, Isaiah 35. I want us to read the chapter together so that we can get a broader sense of what's going to happen uh, in that day of restoration. Isaiah 35, Isaiah says this, The wilderness and and the dry land shall be glad, The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened. And the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness, and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool, and the thirsty ground springs of water. The haunt of jackals, where they lie down. The grass shall become reeds and rushes. And a highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come upon it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. 
So you have this amazing promise in this passage. God tells Israel in verses 3 to 4 that he's going to come with vengeance to meet out punishment on the nations that oppressed Israel. You actually see this punishment spelled out in chapter 34, by the way. There God says that he, will, that he is, quote, enraged against the nations and furious against all their hosts. He has devoted them to destruction, has given them over to slaughter. So there's this destruction that's going to occur in this day. And when you think about passages like Psalm 2 or Psalm 110, it's clear who's going to lead this destruction. It's the coming son of David, the promised Davidic king. That's actually a tremendously good thing in Israel's eyes. They're to be encouraged by this in verses 3 and 4. This coming destruction. In this day, there's going to be this radical restoration of the land of Israel. The wilderness is going to blossom. Pools and streams of waters uh, are going to come gushing into the desert. Natural predators are going to be expelled. And of course... God is going to lead His people back into their land. The ransomed of Israel are going to return home. And they're going to be singing with shouts of joy as they make their way up to Jerusalem in jubilant celebration. This is what Isaiah 35 points to. The coming restoration of Israel. Well, mixed into this promise is this statement in verses 5 and 6. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame man shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Along with this physical and national restoration of Israel, which every Israelite would have realized was going to come when the Davidic king came to mete out punishment upon the nations, in the midst of that there would be this reversal of the curse that would occur to the degree that even the eyes of the blind would be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped, the lame would walk, and the mute would speak. So it was expected that these were the types of signs that would occur with the coming of the Messiah at the arrival of God's kingdom. In fact, back in Matthew 11, when John the Baptist sent representatives to Jesus, inquiring as to whether or not he was indeed the one who had established God's kingdom, this is what Jesus told them. He said, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk and are cleansed. The deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. Those were given as signs to John that Jesus would establish the kingdom of God. These signs, of course, pointed in part to the reversal of the curse that would occur in the days of Messiah. This is part of what Israel hoped in at the Messiah's coming. They believed that He would undo the curse that God imposed on the world when Adam sinned. But it would seem that there was a particularly symbolic meaning to the healing of the blind as well. The healing of the blind didn't only signal the end of the curse. It was also emblematic of what God would do in Israel in that day as well. You see, part of Israel's problem was that they were spiritually blind. This is what actually led to their judgment in exile. Even though they had the commands of God, they were dead to those commands. They wouldn't obey them. They couldn't obey them. They were blind. And so God cast them out of the land until a time should come when He would heal them. If you would, flip over a few chapters to Isaiah 42. We saw this in our call to worship in our scripture reading this morning. In Isaiah 42, God starts to get into detail about how He will restore the nation. And as He speaks of the judgment that He will bring upon the nations, we see this idea of blindness come up once again. Starting in verse 14. Isaiah 42, He says this, For a long time I have held my peace. I have kept still and restrained myself. Now I will cry out like a woman in labor. I will gasp and pant. 
I will lay waste mountains and hills and dry up all their vegetation. I will turn the rivers into islands and dry up the pools. And I will lead the blind in a way they do not know. In paths that they have not known, I will guide them. I will turn the darkness before them into light, the rough places into level ground. These are the things I do, and I do not forsake them. They are turned back and utterly put to shame, who trust in carved idols, who say to metal images, you are our gods. That's actually a pretty similar restoration to what we saw in Isaiah 35. Judgment is being suddenly and violently poured out on the earth, and yet in the midst of this, God is giving sight to the blind, and He's leading them, saying that He won't forsake them. By the time we get to verse 18, we can start to see that this blindness is representative. It's emblematic of the spiritual blindness of Israel and that the healing that will occur is symbolic of the rest, the spiritual restoration that God will perform on Israel in this coming day when He brings them to repentance. God laments the spiritual blindness of Israel starting in verse 18. He says, Hear you deaf and look you blind that you may see. Who is blind but my servant? Or deaf as my messenger whom I send? Who is blind as my dedicated one, or blind as the servant of the Lord? He sees many things, but he does not observe them. His ears are open, but he does not hear. He continues in verses 21 to 25 by explaining that it was for this reason that he handed the people over to judgment, and even then they did not understand the purpose of these things. He says, uh, The Lord was pleased for his righteousness sake to magnify his law and make it glorious. But this is a people plundered and looted. They are all of them trapped in holes and hidden prisons. They have become plunder with none to rescue, spoil with none to say restore. Who among you will give ear to this? Who will attend and listen to the time to come? Who gave up Jacob to the looter and Israel to the plunderers? Was it not the Lord against whom we have sinned? And whose ways they would not walk and whose laws they would not obey? So he poured on him the heat of his anger and the might of battle. It set him, uh, it set on him on fire all around, but he did not understand. It burned him up, but he did not take it to heart. So Israel was spiritually blind. They refused to obey God's law. And so because of this, they were handed over to judgment, a judgment that they still did not understand. They were still unrepentant. Even after all of that, they still refused to take God's law to heart because, again, they were spiritually blind. And yet there's hope for Israel. This emerges in Isaiah 43. In verses 1-4, to God says that even in spite of all this, Israel should not fear, because God loves them and will redeem them. Verses 1-4, to But now thus says the Lord, who created you, O Jacob, who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by my name, you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you, because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. God then speaks of the national restoration that will occur when He in this day, uh, that He will uh, will occur uh, in this day of judgment, uh, saying in verses 5 to 7, Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east, and from the west I will gather you up. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar, and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. 
Now, know what happens here starting in verse 8. He says, so God's going to bring about this national restoration. Look at what happens here in verse 8. He says that He will gather together this blind and deaf people, and they will become His witnesses. Verses 8 to 13. He says, bring out the people who are blind yet have eyes, who are deaf yet have ears. All the nations gather together, and the peoples assemble. Who among them can declare this? And show us the former things. Let them bring their witnesses to prove them right, and let them hear and say it is true. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant who I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am He. Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I, I am the Lord, and beside me there is no Savior. I declared and saved and proclaimed when there was no strange God among you, and you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. Also henceforth I am He. There is none who can deliver from my hand. I work, and who can turn it back? So it would seem that Israel is going to receive their sight so that they can finally fulfill their role that God had for them, starting all the way back in Exodus 19 and 20. They're going to be His witnesses to the nations. They will be a kingdom of priests when they receive their spiritual sight. By the way, if you look down to verses 19 to 21, you'll see that there's a physical restoration that will occur in this day, which mirrors the kind of physical restoration that we saw back in chapter 35. This is what the healing of the blind in chapter chapter 35 appears to symbolize. It points to the spiritual sight that Israel will receive when God restores the nation to their land. And when will this restoration occur? Well, by the time we get to Isaiah 49, we can see that this will all occur in the days of the Messiah. From His servant, Israel, God will call forth a particular servant, one who embodies the people of Israel, who serves as the representative of the nation, and He will be the one to restore this nation. This servant, who will himself be abhorred by Israel, rejected by Israel, He Himself will be a light to the nations. Isaiah 49, 5-7, if you want to flip over there and read along, you can. Isaiah 49, 5-7, it says, And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be His servant, to bring Jacob back to Him, and that Israel might be gathered to Him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob, and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach the end of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and His Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers. Kings shall arise, shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. So this rejected servant is one who will restore the nation. He'll actually restore not just the nation, but he'll, he'll be a light to all the nations. And once again, if you keep reading in verses 8 to 12, you'll see a restoration that occurs in this servant's day that parallels the one that we saw in Isaiah 35. In fact, if you're paying attention to the language that God uses in verses 8 to 12, where He says that He will give this servant as a covenant to the people in verse 8. He says that He will say to the prisoners, come out, and to those who are in darkness, appear in verse 9. Back in verse 6, He says that this servant is, quote, a light to the nations. If you're paying attention to those statements, then it appears that this entire section of Isaiah is introduced with a picture of this coming servant. Isaiah 42, 5-9 says this, 
Thus says the God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and all that comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it, the spirit and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carve idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell them to you. This is what this entire section of Isaiah appears to be about. It's telling Israel about the servant who will come and heal them of their spiritual blindness so that they can be restored and finally fulfill God's mission for them. So then who is this servant? Who's the one who would bring about this restoration? Well, Israel would have understood it's the son of David. He's the one who would conquer Israel's enemies. He's the one who, according to passages like Ezekiel 37, would bring Israel back into their land. Israel's restoration would occur in his day. Isaiah actually spells this out explicitly earlier in the book. In Isaiah 11, 1-5, he says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. A branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The stump of Jesse, that's a reference to the line of David. Jesse was the name of David's father. David's line was cut down when Judah was sent into exile into the Babylonians. But a shoot is going to come forth from this stump, Isaiah says, and he's going to be given the power, authority, and wisdom to rule. Shortly after this, Isaiah continues in verses 10 to 11. He says, In that day the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. In that day the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people, from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, and from Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea. That's what's going to happen in the future. That's the current trajectory of human history. It's going to culminate with the return of God's Messiah. He will return to enter into judgment against the nations that persecuted His people Israel. He will then gather the nation from across the four corners of the earth and bring them back home. And from there He will establish a kingdom whose dominion stretches across the entire planet. But all of this will be preceded by the repentance of Israel, which will occur when God opens their eyes, when He grants them their spiritual sight so that his blind and deaf servant might be transformed into the messenger to the nations that he always intended them to be. And what this means is that when you see the blind gaining sight, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's the significance of this miracle. These blind men come out shouting, Lord, have mercy on us, Son of David. And when Jesus heals them publicly, This signals that this is Him. He is the Son of David. He's the servant that will give Israel their spiritual sight. By the way, note here that according to verse 34, these men recovered their sight here in Matthew. 
Apparently they were not always blind. They could once see, and then they became blind, and now their sight has been restored. That's key to the symbolism of this miracle. It points to the restoration of sight that Jesus will bring. Jesus restores the sight by touch. There's no prayer that precedes this miracle. This power, this authority comes directly from Him. So with this miracle, Jesus signals that He's the one that will give Israel their sight. And this means that He's the one who will enter into judgment with the nations and rescue His people Israel. This is monumental. This is huge. In fact, you could almost argue that for the Jewish reader, and that's who Matthew is writing to, he's writing to Jewish believers, you could argue that to the Jewish reader, this miracle is really almost bigger than all the rest. This is the one that matters. From Matthew's perspective, this is the one that really touches off the events that are about to occur during Passion Week. John points to the resurrection of Lazarus before this and the threat that that sign posed to Israel's religious leadership, how they became concerned that Jesus was stirring up a following that would lead the Romans to come in and take away their place and their nation. In Matthew, though, it all starts here with the healing of these two blind men. Understand, up to this point, Jesus has resisted every effort to expose His Davidic identity. He was okay preaching the kingdom of heaven and performing miracles publicly, so that, and then just letting people kind of come to their own conclusions about who he was. But he refused to publicly affirm the crowd's suspicions about what it all meant. He would let them sometimes say it, but he wouldn't claim that title for himself. Even when he spoke of his messianic role, he preferred to call himself not the son of David, but the son of man which was kind of this veiled reference to the Messiah in Daniel 7. Probably the best example of Jesus' efforts to hide his identity occurs when he heals the two blind men back in chapter 9. If you recall, in that instance, we had a very similar situation. There are these two blind men crying out, Have mercy on us, Son of David. Again, they're calling, out, they're calling Jesus the Son of David because they know that is who is going to heal the blind, the Son of David. And they think that's who Jesus is. And they're crying out over and over again, have mercy on a son of David, as they follow Jesus around. And Jesus ignores them the entire time. He, he doesn't heal them publicly. He, he arrives at the house that he's staying in, waits until he gets into a private setting. And that's strange. Jesus had, Jesus had no problem performing many other types of public healings, but he ignores these two blind men until he gets into a private setting. And he asked them, do you believe that I'm able to do this? In short, he asked them to affirm their faith in the fact that they believe he is the son of David, the one who can cure blindness. And they say, yes, Lord. And he heals them. But then he also sternly warns them, see that no one knows about it. Again, Jesus had no problem healing the lame publicly or even raising the dead. He was okay letting people know that he could perform miracles. But this one, he says, don't let anyone know about this. And it would appear that the reason is because this miracle is peculiarly Davidic. There's no guessing who Jesus is if he can heal the blind. There's no gray area. It means he's not just a miracle. He's not a miracle worker. He's not just a prophet. He's the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of David. And Jesus didn't want that aspect of his identity being revealed all at once. 
I think we can see at least a couple of reasons why this is so when we start to explore what happens when this truth about Jesus does come out. For example, you go to John 6 and you see that after the feeding of the 5,000, there's a crowd of people who attempt to take Jesus, seize Him by force, and make Him king. Jesus resists that attempt. He withdraws. And when He meets the crowd the next day, He tells them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking Me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on Him God the Father has set His seal. Basically, He tells them that they misunderstand what the feeding of the 5,000 meant. They rightly saw it as a demonstration of Jesus' messianic authority, but they saw that authority merely as a means for immediate temporal benefit rather than as a sign that pointed to the thing they really needed, which was eternal life. This is one reason why Jesus hid His messianic identity. He knew it would be misunderstood. Yes, His messianic authority did mean that He could conquer the earth and bless Israel, but what the people always misunderstood, even Jesus' own disciples... What they misunderstood is that it was necessary for God's servant to suffer and die before he redeemed his people. Victory would come, but it wouldn't be immediate. Because before Jesus accomplished this victory, it was necessary for him to atone for their sins. That's one reason why Jesus kind of kept this under wraps. He didn't want it to be misunderstood. The second reason why Jesus hesitated to reveal his identity Davidic identity was because he understood that once it was revealed, it would immediately lead to his death. This is in part because uh, this is in part related to the confusion surrounding what his kingship meant. It was because the people believed that the Messiah's reign would be immediate that the rulers of the earth, Rome in particular, would put to death any supposed Messiah. Such a man would threaten their authority. This is why Herod sought to kill Jesus when he was just a baby. And the Magi came asking, where is he who was born king of the Jews? Joseph had to flee from Bethlehem once Jesus' identity was revealed. And it appears that God arranged to have him grow up in Nazareth in part to conceal this identity from those who would kill him over it until the appointed time of his death had arrived. Again, this was the case that that Caiaphas made before the Sanhedrin after the resurrection of Lazarus. He said, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people than that the whole nation should perish. That's the excuse that he used to persuade the Sanhedrin to put Jesus to death. He said that if Jesus wasn't put to death and an insurrection started under him, then Rome would come in and further restrict Israel's rights as a nation. Of course, when Jesus was standing before Pilate, this is the question that Pilate asked him. He said, Are you the king of the Jews? And when Jesus explained that his kingdom was not of this world, that it was not immediate, that if it was, then his servants would already be fighting for him, it was at that point that Pilate sought to release him. But the people insisted, telling Pilate, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. That was a statement that made Pilate determined to put Jesus to death. And when Jesus was nailed to the cross, of course, this was the charge that hung above his head. Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. So you can see why Jesus kept his identity under wraps. Once it was revealed who he was, once it was understood that he was the son of David, the meaning of that title would be misunderstood, and it would ultimately lead to his execution. And up until this point, it wasn't time for that. 
The appointed time of his death had not arrived. He needed time first to preach his message of the kingdom and to clarify its meaning to his disciples who could continue to proclaim it after his death first. He had to do that first. So Jesus didn't make this fact about himself known, at least not explicitly. He would leave enough out there for those who had ears to hear, to listen, understand, put it together and believe, but not enough for those who rejected him uh, to be alarmed. Personally, I think this is probably the best explanation for why the crowd tries to silence these two blind men. The disciples know who Jesus is by this point. Peter said back in chapter 16 that they believed he was the Christ, the Son of the living God. But you'll recall that the crowds don't think this. They didn't think this about Jesus. Some thought he was John the Baptist. Some thought he was Elijah. Others said he was Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And when Peter made this confession, Jesus strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Again, he was keeping this truth under wraps until the appointed time. So these two blind men start yelling, Son of David, hey, over here, Son of David, please have mercy on us, Lord. And the crowds don't think this is who Jesus is. Yes, the Son of David could heal these men, but they don't think Jesus is that. And so they tell these men to be quiet, to stop calling him that. They know that Jesus is a powerful miracle worker. It's evident by this point that many consider him a prophet, but they don't think he's the Christ. So they tell these men, stop calling him that. Perhaps they even think this is an embarrassment to Jesus to be called the Christ, when so clearly he's not. So I want you to understand what's happening here. Every Jewish male was expected to go up to Jerusalem at the Passover. It's estimated that Jerusalem would swell from about 70,000 people to well over 250,000 at Passover. Perhaps even as many as 2 million people would arrive in Jerusalem at Passover. And that's what's happening here. Jesus is traveling up to Jerusalem for Passover in the midst of this mass of pilgrims with a fairly large entourage of disciples traveling with him. And he's coming from Jericho. That means that most of this crowd is probably Galilean. Even though Galilee was north-northwest of Jerusalem, Jericho was to the east. Uh, Most Galileans would still avoid the region of Samaria by crossing over the Jordan into Perea and then crossing back over again at Jericho on their way up to Jerusalem. So most of this crowd is probably Galilean. This means that most everyone in this crowd has heard about and probably very many have even seen Jesus' miracles. And they've heard him teach. They know who this man is. So think about this. There would have already been this buzz of excitement in the air from the festival season. The people are already in a celebratory mood. But this excitement would have then been multiplied once word began to pass around that Jesus was making the pilgrimage as well. Jesus is already a celebrity at this point, and he's a rather controversial one at that. This is obviously going to attract a lot of attention. In fact, you're probably going to have this crowd of people that are going to start gathering around Jesus to make the trek up to Jerusalem along with him, if for no other reason than just sheer curiosity. They want to see what Jesus is going to do once he gets to Jerusalem. They want to know what's going to happen between him and the religious leaders. Now this crowd isn't too sure what to make of Jesus. Back in chapter 12, they started to connect the dots. And they even got to the point where they asked the question, can this be the son of David? 
But the Pharisees were so absolutely terrified of that possibility that they immediately silenced the issue by saying that Jesus cast out demons by the power of Satan. So even those who like Jesus think that he's probably not the son of David. But then there's these blind men calling out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. Now, they don't think this is what Jesus is, so they try to get them to stop. But then suddenly, unexpectedly, as this rabbi is traveling along, he stops. And he walks over to these men. I mean, you could practically picture the crowd just kind of naturally parting as Jesus walks over to these men and the people wait with bated breath to see what happens next. There's probably nothing more than a few hushed whispers whispers being exchanged as the people speculate about what Jesus is going to do. Jesus walks over to these men and he asks them, he asks them before the crowds, what do you want me to do for you? And the men say, Lord, let our eyes be opened. I think you could probably hear a pin drop in that moment. Every eye and ear would have been fixed on Jesus in eager anticipation, in desperate hope that maybe Jesus can heal these men. And what does, he, what does Jesus do? He reaches out, he touches their eyes, and immediately they can see. I mean, could you just imagine the cheers that would have erupted in that moment as the people realized what was happening, who was standing before them? We're talking about sheer euphoria, absolute pandemonium. There would have been shouting and celebration. People would have been going nuts as they realized what this means. The son of David, the conquering king, he's standing right there in their presence. The kingdom of heaven, they think, is at hand. Do you understand? The triumphal entry starts here. We'll talk about the triumphal entry next week. This is the miracle that sets that off. This is the opening act. This is the one that confirms what the people will celebrate then. Luke says that the people gave praise to God when they saw this miracle. Well, you can imagine that the shouts have already probably begun. Hosanna to the Son of David. Hosanna in the highest. And you can only imagine the terror that the religious leaders in Jerusalem would have felt as the news of what was happening down the road in Jericho started to trickle in. Understand, just a few months earlier, the leaders picked up stones to stone Jesus in the temple during the Feast of Tabernacles. A few weeks after that, they tried to stone Him again during the Feast of Dedication. After that second attempt, Jesus fled across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing, but now He's coming back, and He's got an entourage. And no doubt, the parallels between this event and David's return to Jerusalem would have already been racing through their mind. David, of course, was chased out of Jerusalem by his wicked son Absalom. He fled across the Jordan to a place called Manaheim for for refuge. When he returned, it was the ten northern tribes, which would have included the region of Galilee. They were the first to repent of their rebellion. David actually had to send messengers ahead to Judah to ask him, why would you be the last to welcome me back? That's what this looks like. Jesus has crossed crossed back over the Jordan, on his way back to Jerusalem. And not only does he have this large crowd of excited Galileans surrounding him, but there are these two, catch that, two blind men, that's the amount of witnesses needed to confirm an event. 
He's got, in the Old Testament, he's got two blind men in tow witnessing to the fact that he's the son of David. And where is he starting his journey? He's starting it from the outskirts of Jericho. You know, the Jericho where Israel began its conquest of Canaan? That's where Jesus affirms his Davidic identity and begins his march to Jerusalem. I mean, the scene is actually kind of hair-raising when you get a sense of it. Jesus is quite literally the returning king here. This looks like a war party. This looks like David coming back to reclaim his throne from the wicked leaders who had kicked him out. Again, you can only imagine what kind of terror would have come upon the religious leaders when they got wind of all this. And this is why the healing of the blind men is significant. It's not because of the size of the miracle, but because of what it means, what it signals. Jesus is explicitly affirming His rights to the, to the Davidic throne, and He's doing it publicly when He heals these men. He's never done this before. This is the first time in His ministry this has happened. He's hinted at it before. The people have suspected it before, but he hasn't just come out and said it. Here he comes out and says it. He's hiding his identity no more. This is a major turning point in Jesus' ministry. He isn't withdrawing anymore. He's standing his ground. Everything that he, ha- that he is is open and out there. And what this means is that a head-on collision with the religious leaders is now imminent. Again, Jesus hid this aspect of himself because he knew once it was revealed, it would only be a matter of time before he would be killed. And that's what's going to happen. It's not going to take long now for the religious leaders to actualize the plans that they only dreamt of before. Jesus has gone too far here. The thing that they feared the most about Jesus is actually happening. The one thing they couldn't let the crowds say about him, that he's the son of David, the crowds are now saying that. So it's not going to take long now. In fact, he's going to be dead within a matter of days. And Jesus knows this. In fact, he's planning on it. He knows that Israel isn't going to believe. Israel had never believed. It was only due to to divine intervention that the first generation was restrained in their rebellion against Moses. The following generations then rejected God's rule again and again and again and again during the time of the judges. They rejected the first David when they went running after Absalom. And then the ten northern kingdoms rejected the rule of his grandson not long after that. They rejected the testimony of the prophets over and over again. So Israel was never going to accept Jesus. That was actually the very reason why Jesus had been sent. God's messenger was blind and deaf. And they needed his son first to make atonement for their sin. And second, to come and open their eyes. So Jesus knows this isn't going to end in victory. He doesn't even plan on it. He knows that Isaiah 53 predicted God's servant would die for the sins of the people. He warned his disciples that it would happen. He knows he needs to die. And he knows that it's his identity as God's son, as the Davidic king, that will get him killed. And so what he does here is set in motion that sequence of events. That's really what this miracle is. This miracle is the fuse that sets off the powder keg that is Passion Week. 
The confrontations that will occur during Passion Week essentially start here with the healing of these blind men. There's no turning back now. And Jesus knows that. He wants this miracle to bring his conflict with the religious leaders to the point of crisis so that he can suffer and die for the sins of his people. So really there's a strange juxtaposition happening here. On one hand you have the crowds surrounding Jesus. They think that Jesus is about to go to war and they're jubilant over the prospect of the coming victory. But in the midst of all the shouting and celebration, there's Jesus making His way up to Jerusalem and what He sees in front of Him is a cross. The people are rejoicing because they think the kingdom of heaven is getting nearer and nearer with each step along this road, but for Jesus it's actually the infinite wrath of Almighty God that's drawing closer and closer. That's what these cheers signal to Him. They mean that his rejection and death are at hand. So there are shouts and joy of joy over the prospect of victory going all around Jesus, but inside he understands that he's about to face his darkest hour. And he's readying himself for that. Incidentally, it was in this it was in the region along this road up to Jerusalem that Satan tempted Jesus by telling him that he could have all the kingdoms of the world without suffering if he would just worship him. You can imagine that the memory of those temptations would have played through Jesus' head as he travels up this road. He probably realizes that all those offers are still on the table if he wanted to take them. And yet with every step to Jerusalem, he proves once again that he's not any less determined now than he was then. Jesus has got a mission to complete and he's not going to stop until it's finished. Once again, we're at a turning point in Jesus' ministry. This miracle signals that we've entered the final stage. It's the beginning of the end. Jesus Life is going to be over, at least temporarily, uh, from a human perspective, in a little over a week. It's undoubtedly the most important week in human history, and we're going to spend almost a year here as we close out the final chapter of Jesus' life and ministry. So what should you take away from this miracle? What should you do with the healing of these blind men? It's pretty simple. You ask Jesus to open your eyes. Don't miss what this miracle communicates. It reveals that Jesus is the conquering King. The crowds weren't wrong for believing that this miracle signaled that Jesus was going to judge the nations of the earth. They were wrong about the timing. Isaiah predicted that the blind would receive their sight in the days of the Messiah, and he predicted that this Messiah would judge the nations of the earth. So the crowds weren't wrong in making this connection between the healing of the blind and the coming judgment of the earth. It's just that Isaiah also predicted in Isaiah 53 that the Messiah would suffer for the sins of the people. And the nation didn't understand how all that worked. They didn't understand that Jesus had to do this first. The basic expectation was right. It was just misunderstood. So these two men... They continue to serve as witnesses to the fact that Jesus will one day return to judge the earth as God's chosen king. And on one hand, that should give us hope because it means that Jesus is going to return to restore the earth. One of the things that this miracle demonstrates is Jesus' ability to reverse the effects of the curse. So these blind men show us that there's reason to have hope. The curse is not permanent. And we know this because the one who will undo All the curse has already entered into the world and demonstrated His power through amazing signs and wonders. This miracle is an encouragement in this sense. And yet it's also kind of terrifying. 
Because it means that Jesus will also return to judge the earth. Yes, Jesus is going to restore the earth. And He's going to restore in part through judgment. He's going to purge it of the evil that's in it through the judgment of the wicked. This miracle signals that too. And we're all sinners. So there's hope in this miracle, but it should make us tremble at the name of Jesus too because He's the conquering King. So what do you do in light of this miracle? You repent. You turn to Jesus and you ask for forgiveness. Listen, don't miss why Jesus touches these men's eyes. Uh, Look at verse 34. Look one more time there. These men cry out, Have mercy on us, Son of David. They say to Jesus, Have compassion on us. And what does Matthew say? He says, And Jesus in pity touched their eyes. Is Is Jesus a conquering king? Is he a righteous king? Yes, absolutely. But he's also a compassionate king. He has pity on those who come to him and cry out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. So will he destroy the wicked? Yes, and without hesitation. But at the same time, he will also show compassion to every single sinner who comes to him asking for mercy. He will forgive their sins. In fact, this is the very reason why he's going to Jerusalem. Again, the crowds think that Jesus is going to Jerusalem to conquer, and one day he will. But first he came to suffer and die on behalf of sinners. He came to make a way for pardon before he returns in judgment. So how do you respond to this miracle? You repent, you ask Jesus to have mercy and forgive your sins. And if you say, look, I want to do that, but I just have a hard time believing. I mean, maybe you have a hard time accepting the idea that Jesus is God's king. Or maybe you think you're too much of a sinner for Jesus to forgive your sins. Maybe you don't even think that you're much of that, that much of a sinner at all. You can't understand, perhaps, what you need to be forgiven of. But you understand this miracle happens. And you're wondering what to do with it. Well, guess what you do then? You ask Jesus to open your eyes. Remember, there's a metaphorical dimension to this miracle. It's a sign. It points to a spiritual truth. And and what it points to is rooted back in Isaiah 42 and 43. Israel was a blind messenger who could not, who would not heed God's word. And so God was going to remove their spiritual blindness and He would do this through His chosen servant. That's Jesus. This means that Jesus has the power to lift your spiritual blindness. God promised to remove Israel's spiritual blindness through His new covenant. In this covenant, He would pour His Spirit out on His people so they could heed God's Word and obey. Jesus ratified this new covenant with His death on the cross as was demonstrated through the pouring out of the Holy Spirit on His disciples at Pentecost. This means that now, that Jesus now, presently, can open your eyes. All you have to do is like these blind men, recognize your blindness and cry out to Him to have mercy. It's like Jesus told the Pharisees after the healing of the blind men in John 9. Some of them asked Him, are we also blind? And He told them, if you were blind, you you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. This is where salvation begins. It begins when you recognize that you are so ensnared in your sins that you need Christ to open your eyes and change your sinful heart. 
You recognize that you are completely and totally dependent on Jesus for salvation from your sins from beginning to end. That's what this miracle was meant to signal to Israel, that they needed Jesus to open their eyes so that they could believe. So if you're struggling to believe, that's how you respond to. You call on Jesus to open your eyes so that you can believe. He will not turn you down. If you come to Him in true humility and faith, dependence, He will answer. He's a compassionate King. So don't hesitate. Ask Him to open your eyes so you can believe. This is something that we all need Jesus to do, actually. Whether we've been in Christ for 30 years or whether we're still seeking to understand the Gospel for the first time, everyone needs Christ to open their eyes. Faith is not merely a one-time act. It's something that we work out continually as we grow in our sanctification. It's ongoing that we believe, and at times we struggle with that faith. So let's close this morning, all of us, by asking Jesus to open our eyes to believe. Let's pray.